Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is February the 2nd, 2021. Do you know what that means? The date is 2221. Yep, and yesterday the date was 2121. I'm sorry I missed that uh, with my numeric pattern recognition. It's seldom that I would let something like that blow by me. But I did, I guess, because yesterday I was multitasking like that little gif of SpongeBob SquarePants. Uh, I was literally a one-legged man in an ass-kicking contest all the way to dark last night. Those of you that follow me on MeWe see that might have seen that I ended my day in a pretty nice way, though. Um, after all the stuff that I did, including shooting three videos which are not published yet, doing the walkthroughs that I promised you on the projects for the workshop coming up, and remember the workshop uh, registration date is. Saturday this week. I, I, I can look it up here right now because I, I can't tell you off the top of my head. Saturday the 6th. That's this Saturday. We are going to be doing registrations for the workshop. If you're not in a Telegram group, you probably ain't getting in because that's how I'm going to do it. At, at uh, 9 a.m. Central Standard Time, I'm going to drop a registration link in there. If that link survives for, say, 10 minutes, I'll put it on the blog for everybody. I don't expect it to happen. Uh, the excitement's pretty big on this one, and I'm only taking 30 students. Uh, but anyway, it's just a rough day yesterday. And it wasn't rough in a bad way. It's just a rough in trying to get so much done. Uh, I got 90% of the work done for the registration for the event, uh, the event documents. All that stuff takes time. It's time-consuming. Uh, I reuse a lot of that material, but a lot of it has to be customized for the current time and place. Um, so I got done with all that. I had... Uh, I had a, a little bit of a break, and I went outside, and I did some more brush clearing and made a fire. And I used a little MeWe camera app where I got to take a, a video of me and the fire and the dog and the tractor all at the same time. It's pretty cool. And uh, wrapped up my day there. I got up this morning, and I said to myself, Self, huh, you're up to episode 42 of Miyagi Mornings. What the hell are you going to do about uh, Miyagi Mornings this morning? And I thought, you know what? I've been, I've been asking for feedback and suggestions on MeWe. But there is some, you know, we're going to learn today in today's subject, which is about chickens, that MeWe is like many things. It has goods and bads, uh, pluses and minuses. Everything you give, you get a, you know, Everything you get, you give a little. And uh, I've run a, a, a post there like this, but they don't have permalinks, so I can't bookmark the damn thing. And I've been running a sticky on MeWe for people to meet each other, and so I changed it today and made my sticky the suggestions for Miyagi Mornings. And some questions came in about chickens and roosters and feeding and stuff like that. And so today's episode of Miyagi Mornings was about this. And like yesterday, I'm going to kind of continue the subject from the video in the morning with the podcast in the afternoon. The difference is I'm going to go a totally different way with it. I was thinking about how many times I get questions from people. I need to get chickens. What kind of chicken should I get? And you know my answer. You know it if you've been listening any length of time at all. It depends. And it, it is always, when you give a good it depends answer, you explain what it depends on, and that's what today's going to be about. And what it, it made me think of is, in some ways, chickens, you're going you're gonna to be like, what is he talking about at first? Unless, unless maybe you've already had this little mental exercise for yourself. Chickens, in many ways, are a lot like WordPress plugins. Okay? And here's what I mean by that. Let's say you're like, oh, I got this idea for a website. I'm going to go get somebody to custom build me a website, and I want it to do X, Y, and Z. Odds are, 
You can install WordPress in about 15 seconds, and you can go find a plug-in, turn it on and install it in about another 15 seconds, and you'll have a website that does 90% of what you want already. So starting from an idea of, I need to create a website that does this in 2021 is probably not the way to go. And even if you wanted something, you're better off probably using something, and there's other platforms that do this, but using something like a WordPress and a plugin, and then customizing the last bit of what you want. I'd say that's more too true with chickens than it is with websites. The man and the chicken have worked together, probably against the chicken's will on some level, for centuries. For centuries. As we talked about before, the chicken is originally a jungle fowl. It's a bird that ran around in Asia, in the jungles. The man went, hmm, this bird seems to have potential, and started breeding it and working with it and partnering with it. And over all of these centuries, almost everything that a person could want from a chicken has been conceived of and at least attempted and was either succeeded at or partially succeeded at. So instead of, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go make a chicken, you're better off picking a chicken. And that's what it depends on. What it depends on is, what are your goals? What do you want? What kind of environment do you have? What kind of environment can you provide? What kind of things about your environment can you not change? We're not going to really get into temperature today, but there's birds that can really handle heat. And there's birds that can really handle cold. Throw a bonus at you of a breed here. Uh, if you, you live in a really, really hot climate, the white leghorn is probably the most heat-tolerant bird out there. Okay, and then there's birds that can really handle the cold really, really well. Well, you probably shouldn't take the bird really, really bred for the cold and put it in a place like central Texas. And you probably shouldn't take the bird that was bred for the heat, like the white leghorn, and put it up in northern Saskatchewan. Right, so there's an example of what it depends on. We're going to go deeper into this today. And I really hope you enjoy today's episode. You're not big on chickens. Give me a chance. I'm going to use this as a permaculture teaching tool that will apply to permaculture, but the methodology behind the thinking will apply to just about anything you can apply systems to think systems thinking to. And you know what you can apply systems thinking to? Almost anything that humans do. So this will be a lesson for everybody, not just chicken enthusiasts. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor day number one today is JM Bullion. I've been recommending silver and gold in your portfolio for as long as I've done TSP. I've been someone who stacks a bit of silver and gold for far longer than that. My relationship with silver goes back to my grandfather on my mother's side. who would, I, I can't even remember how old I was, but I can tell you I was a, I was a kid. I was like, you know, pre-middle school. And he said, come on, one day he said, come in here, let me show you something. And he pulled this big heavy sock it probably weighed a couple three pounds out of the drawer that he kept you know he kept all his stuff in and he put it on the bed and he untied the sock and he dumped it it was just a huge pile of dimes and quarters and 50 cent pieces and a few dollars and he said let me tell you about this this is silver this is what we used to make money out of this would have been somewhere in the early 80s all right so it'd been 20 years since we came off of silver as a standard in 1964. And he explained to me how we used to make this money with this metal because the metal had the value. And that the money today had a promise for value versus a guarantee of value. 
And he said, one day when I'm gone, some of this will be yours. Never forgot it. Never forgot it. Never will. When I'm old and dead, wherever I go next, hopefully I'll still even remember that lesson. The reality of value versus a promise of value. And because of that, I've always made it a piece. Not the majority, not the huge amount. You know, it's 5 to 10% of my net worth that I keep like that. And it's what I've recommended for you. Now, it's why to go get JM Bullion and get it. Because it costs less. They're a great small company that will take care of you if there's ever a problem. They always have. I haven't had to contact the president of this company over an issue in like six years now. But at the beginning, we had some little hiccups as they were getting started out. And, I ha and they always took care of it. I have the president on you know first name basis. Um, they have free shipping. They have better pricing. And if you're an MSB member, they give you a discount. So my question to you would be, if you're going to invest in silver, why would you go anywhere else? Next up today, the other precious metal. We call that copper-jacketed lead. Bulk Ammo has been a sponsor of this show for eight seasons now. And I just emailed them and said, hey, I just want to make sure you all want to stay a sponsor. I'm, I'm making some changes. I'm bringing some new folks in. You don't owe me any money until, like, mid-March. And the response was, checks in the mail. Like, we don't want we don't want to lose our spot. We love working with y'all. Ammo dries up faster than guns. And there's a reason. You take your, 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 uh, your carbine or whatever out to the range, and you shoot it a whole bunch, you take it home and clean it. You shoot that ammo, unless you know how to reload, it's gone. And even if you know how to reload, you got to get Bullets, which are still pretty easy to get. You got to get brass, which is still pretty easy. You got to get primers and, and, and powder, which is real hard to get right now. So you want to bulk up on your ammo. And where would you do that other than bulkammo.com? Remember, they do a discount for MSB members as well. With that, let's get into today's subject. Let's start out with a quote. And uh, I was looking for a quote about chickens. And I was surprised that there's not a lot of them. And I, I got short on time this morning. I didn't want to push myself like I did yesterday, so I gave up. I was looking for the quote, the exact quote by Bill Mollison about we are the chickens and the role that chickens play as pioneers in systems. And since I couldn't find it, I just went to Brainy Quote and put in chickens. And I found this one, and no, it's not directly related to what we're talking about today. In a way, it is. And I'll explain how after I give it to you. It's by Arnold Glass Glasso, who I do not know at all. But he said the key to everything is patience. You get the chicken by hatching the egg, not by smashing it. Kind of a lesson of the golden goose, right? The guy cut the goose open to get all the eggs out of it and killed the golden goose and no more eggs, right? No golden eggs. It's the same type of thinking. We, we, we have to be patient in what we do. If we plant a seed, we don't go, you know, water it, go out there the next morning and go, grow! And they say, this seed doesn't work if it's not germinated and grown to a full-size plant in a day or two. We know that it's going to take time for that to come out. Well, like I said, I want to use this as a teaching episode today beyond, you know, just here's some stuff you could want from a chicken and here's the breeds to pick. If I did that, I might as well make a 10-minute or less YouTube video. If you want this, get that. That's not really what this is. This is how we get to those answers, and it's how we make good decisions in our life. Permaculture, even if you never want to grow a bean sprout, is a valuable discipline because it's systems-level thinking. It's troubleshooting before the problem. That's another way to look at it. I've always said one of, my, one of my attributes, one of my skills that I was trained in in the military was troubleshooting. Troubleshooting in the fact that 
you know, you're in the military and somebody brings you a truck and says, this is the problem. And then not, you don't just fix it. They tell you the problem from the standpoint of an operator. I'm driving the truck and it makes this noise. The noise is not the problem. It's a symptom. We now, like a doctor does with a patient, must diagnose it so we can take the right corrective action. And we have to take the right... The, the thing might be, well, it makes this noise. Well, maybe we find a place where a, a noise is coming from and it's a friction point and we fill it with grease or some other lubricant. Is that corrective action? It depends. Do we have a metal to metal that was never supposed to happen that's created damage that's going to cause a complete failure if we don't replace the part? Right? Or is it even a thing that, that lubrication will, will solve? Or is it that simple? All of those things are possible. The only way we know we're taking the right steps in fixing the problem is by diagnosing it. And we can do that, and we do that in permaculture. That's one of our principles of accepting feedback. We do a thing that we think is going to work, and then when it doesn't work, we figure out why not and we fix it. That's, that's the troubleshooting in a typical mindset. But design itself is preemptive troubleshooting. We take an analysis of us, an analysis of the land, and an analysis of the goals, and an analysis of everything we think we're going to put into it and how we're going to put it together, and we look for the problems before they occur. All this for a chicken? Absolutely. Absolutely. And the main way that I want to come at this analysis today, because every element that we put into a design should be analyzed in multiple ways. But one of the primary ways we analyze, especially a living thing, is its intrinsic characteristics. There are certain things that are intrinsically characteristic of a thing. A chicken has intrinsic characteristics. And then there's further intrinsic characteristics of a breed. A really big, fat, giant-ass breed bird is not going to be flying over six-foot fences. His intrinsic characteristic of being a fat-ass prevents it. A really thin light bird is not going to be inhibited by a five or six foot fence. It will go right over it unless we take some other action. Right? That's intrinsic characteristics. Let's really drill down, though. So many people use words without defining them and assume that the other person knows what they mean or assume they know what they mean. One of my good friends, Nick Ferguson, is very quick to use the following quote from a terrible movie called Princess Bride. I do not think that word means what you think it means. But it's amazing how often he's right when he pulls that quote out. Some person will write some big, long bullshit, and he'll take correction to it and say, this word you just used doesn't mean what you think it means. Therefore, your entire argument starts to fall apart. So intrinsic means belonging to the essential nature or constitution of a thing. A characteristic is a distinguishing trait, quality, or property. In other words, when it comes to animals... Some animals and further some breeds behave in a certain way simply due to their nature. And this is something that, is, again, like I said earlier, is both true about the, the entire species, chicken is a species, but then is refined at the breed level because we have, again, by observing, interacting, and, and selectively breeding, changed the chicken from this kind of really ornamental jungle fowl that was very light, to an incredible variety of breeds that go from really, really tiny to great, big, and huge. 
that go from relatively light in body to size to relatively heavy in body and size, to being incredible producers of eggs or incredible producers of meat, to being really aggressive or really passive, but yet all intrinsic characteristics, or all chickens have common intrinsic characteristics and then breed specific ones. And before we go into this, let's also look at what element analysis is. What is that? That means we take a thing and we say, I'm going to use this thing, or I'm going to have this thing, or this thing's here, right? What is it? What are its intrinsic characteristics? If it's a tree, it's going, and it's not dead, it's going to keep growing. That's an intrinsic characteristic. If it's an evergreen, it is going to provide shade year-round. If it is deciduous, it is going to provide a lot of shade in late spring through fall and very limited shade in winter. That's an intrinsic analysis. A tree uh, or element analysis It's going to die eventually. Or we're going to choose to harvest it. That's part of anal analyzing the element, even though it was already there. When it comes to installing a tree, it has an intrinsic characteristic based on what kind of tree it is. It could be an incredibly drought-tolerant tree. Perhaps we want that. It could be an incredibly water-hungry tree. There's a big difference between a cedar and a willow, far more than in just their form. It could be a tree that thrives in alkaline conditions, like a pecan. Or it could be a tree like, oh, I don't know, a choke cherry, that thrives in acidic soils. Doesn't mean one can't go on the other, but boy, they have a place they prefer. That's intrinsic. We're not going to change that. It's key to the element that we're using. A wall that faces north will stay cool. A wall that stays, faces south will stay warm. A wall that faces west will be brutally hot in some climates in the late afternoon, but relatively cool in the mornings. We're not going to change that. That's an intrinsic characteristic. Some walls may better hold heat. Some walls may be not so good at holding heat, depending on their materials. That's also intrinsic, but all walls will follow certain rules based on their orientation if they're in certain parts of the world, based on latitude and longitude. And we need to put every element when we're designing through this, and then we have to resist analysis paralysis. Because that's the other... The, the problem with engineers, when you introduce this to them, is they completely understand it, and therefore they tend to overanalyze. You say, Jack, you're supposed to analyze everything. Yeah, but at some point, you've got to pull the trigger. At some point, no matter how much you think you know, you're not going to really know until you do it. And then when we look at something like a chicken, it's alive. Chicken has a brain roughly the size of a pea. And yet it still has its own individual nature. Just because chicken breed A is known for being broody doesn't mean all the hens that you have of that breed will be broody hens. And just because it's an intrinsic characteristic that it won't be a broody bird doesn't mean it never will. I've been told for ages, for instance, a different bird here. Quail. Courtney's quail, Japanese quail. They've been domesticated so long, they don't go broody. I've seen them do it. 
that's not an intrinsic characteristic, it's an exception to the rule, but it occurs. And just as exceptions to rules can be beneficial to you, oh, I like that this happened this way, they can be detrimental. You can assume that it will work, and a living creature can decide, nope, I'm not going to do that. Right? Here's another example. Cats don't like water. Cats don't like the smell of vinegar. Hence, an exceptional tool for training cats not to do certain things is a spray bottle full of water with a teaspoon of vinegar in it. And the cat does the behavior, and what do you do? You spray the cat. This I have never seen this fail until my, my son and his family got a cat. His name is Cooper. And do you know what Cooper does when you spray him with vinegar? He opens his mouth and he drinks it. So that's what I'm saying. Individual living things especially. And the higher the form of life, the more individual characteristics based on the, you know, the individual specimen you will get. You're not going to get a tremendous amount of variety from a single form of slime mold. But even something as lowly as a chicken, you will find individuals with different personality traits. Okay? So, We're going to start with, what are the core intrinsic characteristics? Like, all chickens do this to some degree. People say, like, well, what kind of dog doesn't bite? All dogs bite. Yeah, I've seen little dogs take a person's finger near off. Okay, so all dogs bite. But some dogs are more prone to aggression, and some dogs are more prone to other things. We can do the same thing with a chicken, but we start off from a premise that, you know, all chickens scratch. All chickens... You put them in an environment where there's anything interesting to them and they think there might be more stuff in this place, they start scratching. They all eat. We can say beyond chickens, like all animals eat. In reality, all living things eat in one form or another. But when it comes to animals, all animals have some form of a mouth and they put stuff in it and it goes inside and they digest it. And then what happens next? They poop. Right? All chickens poop. All chickens breed. Now, I know what you're thinking, Jack. What about the Cornish cross chicken? Okay, we're letting that out of the, the mix for today. But I'm guaranteeing you, if you got thousands of them and found some that could actually move around, and I've even heard from people who said they've kept some Cornish crosses into maturity and had them lay eggs. So there's always the exception to the intrinsic characteristic. All chickens breed. What came next? The, first, the chicken or the egg. It doesn't matter. In the end, all chickens lay eggs and have baby chickens. All chickens make noise. Some are more quiet, some are louder, and then there are individuals. Cochins are known as a very quiet breed. I have one that just... That's just her. But they all make some form of noise. They all lay eggs. They roost. Chickens roost. And I don't necessarily mean get up on something really high... What I mean by roost is, when night comes, they go to a place they feel safe as possible, and they sleep there, right? They are all predators. There is no chicken that I know of that if you have creepy crawlies coming around, it won't hunt it down and eat it. What I've seen chickens do to a mouse is um, kind of like a, a scene out of a dinosaur movie, Right? I mean, it's pretty pretty horrific what I've seen them do to a mouse. What I've seen them do to snakes. I had a snake one time that I, I had to kill it because it was 
it was literally picked away from its body. It looked like a living skeleton in a way, and that's kind of what it was. They are predators, and they're all prey. There is no chicken that's like, I am the badass chicken. And a dog or a coyote or a raccoon's like, shit, I'm not messing with that chicken. I did have a chicken one time attack a fox, but it was a young fox in broad daylight, and it scared the shit out of that fox. But if that fox was kind of a little more mature, it would have just ate him. Right? So they are all predators and prey. And my next question is, how many more can you name? You know, they all have feathers. And since they all have feathers and they're all birds, they all molt. You can keep going. And in some ways you should. Because when we, when we keep going, we end up realizing, well, if they poop, we have a waste stream. If they scratch, we have a processing mechanism. If they shed feathers, we have a resource. Right? Those feathers could be used for some sort of craft or industry, or they can simply be composted as protein. But one way or another, if it's a resource and we fail to utilize it, what do we call it? Remember that quote from Bill Mollison? We call it pollution. So any behavior that results in an output creates a stream of material that must be harvested in some way or it becomes a pollutant. Maybe it's naturally processed. To tell you the truth, what I do with feathers, when I have ducks more than chickens, but every year there's this eventual explosion of feathers. It looks like ducks just exploded in, in the holding area. I don't do anything. My natural process of making compost ends up with those feathers going in there. But it's still important to know that they're there. And think about that if we want to get a good analysis here. And the more things we can identify, the more interconnections we can find. Now I want to move on to matching some breeds to your goals and your needs and your situation. As I do this, there's three big things that I want you to consider. Because whenever I do this, it's, I always get emails that are like, I can't believe you didn't include. Okay. I am not giving you the breed. I'm giving you a breed. Every one of these that I picked a breed for, you can probably find another breed that would work. And maybe you can find a breed that better combines two things because that's what's important to you. The next thing is I am doing this for homesteaders, not commercial farmers. I'm going to give you a breed for meat production that you can reproduce that is a great chicken even to do pastured poultry with. I have personally found, though, by raising it myself, that it is not good for the American consumer who wants to buy a chicken. I'll explain why when I get to it. But I'm not doing this for someone that wants to raise a thousand or two thousand or ten thousand birds a year, process them or have them processed and sell them to market. I am doing this for people that want chickens, and this could be any other thing, in their own backyard, so to say, for their own particular needs and use. And I'm also assuming, and I know how dangerous that can be, unless you tell somebody you're assuming before you go forward, I am assuming for the sake of this discussion, Right? Because they say, you know, when you assume you make an ass out of you and me, when you assume without disclosure, that's when that happens. When you assume with disclosure, you set the tone for the discussion. My assumption here is that you are going to want to be able to reproduce your own birds. So if I was going at this from a standpoint of meat production, surely in time, if somebody was dedicated enough, they could end up probably reproducing Cornish crosses 
It ain't easy, and it probably doesn't make sense for the backyard producer who wants self-reproduction. All right? I'm trying to come at this from a standpoint of self-sufficiency. Right? Remember, self-reliance is in time. Self-sufficiency is in percentage. Self-sufficiency is the thing that we are working at the most as homesteaders. Self-reliance is fundamentally limited because it's done through the acclimation of things. So we get self-reliance when it comes to, let's say, energy with a generator and gasoline. We're extremely self-reliant. We don't even notice the difference if we have a big enough generator and enough gas until the gas runs out. And since we can't poop gas, in that way anyway, right? then we are limited in time. No matter how much gas we have, no matter how big our generator is, at a certain run rate, the gas will run out and we will have to resupply it. Self-sufficiency we look at in percentages, and it's, for all intents and purposes, ongoing and infinite. So we're using chickens. Let's think about it this way. If, if my property is designed and managed in a way that my chickens can get 50% of their feed from the land itself, from the systems itself that I've built, then I am 50% self-sufficient, period, full stop, when it comes to my chicken feed needs. And if, if that then gives me 100% of my egg needs, I'm, how, how self-sufficient am I with my eggs? You want to say that's 100%, don't you? You feel it that way. Like, okay, you get all the eggs you could want from your chickens. You're 100% self-sufficient with eggs. No. I'm 50% self-sufficient for my egg needs. Why? I still need 50% of the feed to produce the eggs. Now, if the eggs are produced in surplus, and because of my 50% self-sufficiency on feed, I can sell the surplus eggs, and I can get enough money from those eggs to buy the feed... I'm almost 100%. I'm, I'm, I am self-sufficient to 100% for my egg needs with an asterisk. You know, like when an athlete breaks a record, but, right? I am, I am as self-sufficient as the dependency of that supply line for the feed. You start to see how this analysis works, where you go, I will never be perfect. How good can I be for my needs, my time, etc.? Um, just... Again, keep that in mind as I go forward. And the big thing is, when I give you a breed to a, a, a thing, it's an option, not the option, not the best even. Like this is what I said in my video today is, <clears throat> when it comes to my advice on chickens, call it amateur. In fact, call it informed amateur advice. I can perform this analysis very well that I'm talking about today, and I have experience with chickens for a couple of years with a fairly large flock. I do not know chickens the way that I know ducks. And it's very possible you're like, you know what, Jack, you're wrong. This chicken was way better for that thing. If you have more experience and you've used that bird, it's probably true, and it probably still has some butts, all right, and not just chicken butts. All right, first up, meat production. This is what I was talking about. This breed is generally considered something you have to buy, but I am telling you from my own experience, it's not. It's known as the Red Ranger. It's also called the Dixie Rainbow. They are the same bird. This is the one that I said that I don't think works really well for commercial meat production for the American audience. The French actually love this bird. It gets huge, relative to its size, thighs and legs. And I love dark meat more than light meat. 
The breasts on this bird, as huge as they look, are, are relatively small. They don't have that huge plump breast like a Cornish Tross does. But the reason that they tend to not work well for the American audience, when you grow them to their, you know, to a reasonable portion of their size potential, their bones are huge. And even when they're cooked for long lengths of time, the bones themselves tend to look as though they're undercooked. If you've ever gone to a restaurant and they really like screwed the pooch on it and you cut into chicken, like a nice chicken thigh, you know, leg combo and it's bloody on the bone, how do you feel? Like, oh, especially if you ate a little bit of it before you got down there and saw it, Ugh, I'm going to die of freaking poisoning or something, right? I have cooked these birds in a slow cooker for hours to where you reach in and you grab the thigh bone and you pull and it comes out, you know what I'm talking about, where it falls off the bone, it comes out clean and it's still red. And that does not help. It also, as they get larger, even if they're not real old, they, they tend to be, need to be cooked a little bit differently even than other pasture poultry. You can get kind of a rubbery nature to the legs and thighs. Um, and they have a darker appearance. And because they have dark feathers, any pin feathers left behind make a not-so-nice carcass. All this means the square root of F all. None of this is insurmountable, and it's a fantastic meat bird. The quality and the flavor of the meat is so beyond the Cornish cross that if I were raising birds for meat, it's what I would raise. Okay, so that's what I'm saying. Like, it meets the intrinsic characteristics of this bird. It's not going to not be red in color, and it's not going to have not have colored pin feathers because it does. It's not going to not have big-ass legs and thighs. It's not going to not have its dark meat be very dark. Those are intrinsic characteristics. But people say, well, you know, you really can't raise them. Yes, you can, because I did it. Um, I kept two hens, and I kept a rooster from a run that I did, and they bred, and they laid eggs, and I hatched the eggs, and the babies looked like the moms. They weren't great egg birds, but that's not what we're after. They wrote, for the size of the bird, pretty small eggs. And one really taken to the full duration of their potential, they're like small freaking turkeys. I've had some dress out in the 11 to 12 pound range at about 18 weeks. They're a great meat bird in that particular thing. Okay, But that assumes I want meat over eggs. I want meat over fill in the blank. Because they're kind of a big, doofy bird. All right? Next, um, egg production. So what I'm saying when I say egg production here, I have a family. We have mom, dad, two kids, and a couple dogs. I want to go get six chickens. I want maximum yield on my eggs. I want damn near every one of those birds through the high season laying an egg a day. I want to know what's going to happen. And I want a great quality egg. Red sex link. There's, I'm, again, not saying no other bird will fit this need. What I'm saying is a red sex link will fit this need perfectly. Absolutely perfectly. And we can get a cockerel. And they will reproduce. I don't care what anybody says. You, If you put a red sex link cockerel and a red sex link hen together, you know what you're going to get? A red sex link chicken. The ability to identify the sex may fade. In fact, it's flip a coin whether you'll be able to tell or not. And that means that maybe 
<laughs> it's gone altogether, and that's just your odds. But the bird, when it grows up, will lay eggs it just as good as its parents. And if it's a girl, it won't take long before you know it. If it's a boy, it won't take long before you know it. And to me, that makes them exceptional for straight-up egg production. Everything you gain, you give something up. Especially in the world of living things. So what are the downsides? Because I gave you the downsides of the Red Ranger. Again, Red Ranger, Dixie Rainbow, same bird. Well, chickens, again, this is a common intrinsic characteristic. At 18 months of age, roughly, depending on when they're born, what time of the year, etc. But basically, the fall of their first full year, well, actually late summer, their first full year, August here, will molt. When they molt, they will stop laying eggs or very, very few eggs. That's what they'll do. They'll just really slow down to almost none. Because once they shed their, their feathers, all their energy goes to growing new feathers. So they don't, they don't really have time to be growing eggs. They go into a pause. As that ends, they'll start laying again. They will lay somewhere in the neighborhood of 300 eggs their first full year. That is a full 30% of all the eggs a chicken will ever have. Another intrinsic characteristic, something you cannot change in your chicken. I don't care if it's a, a Bantam Silky or Jersey Giant. A female chicken's born with a thousand potential eggs, a thousand of them. That's it. Once they get to the number 1,000, they're done. They go into henopause, like menopause, right? Done. When they get done with that 300 egg cycle, I don't know why. But I'm telling you from my own experience, when you start go, when they when they come back to laying, they begin to lay eggs that are slightly deformed. And I don't notice this anywhere near as much with other breeds. This means absolutely nothing to a homesteader or someone selling eggs to people that don't care. Like the homesteader that sells their surplus. It's fine. The commercial producers, they they use these because they're so good at producing and but they they cull them all after their first cycle. You can get about two cycles out of them, and then their lay rate, not only do they have the odd-looking egg that gets a little odder, it goes into further decline, but all chickens will do that. And I would say that your red sex links, after season three of the egg-laying seasons, you have an expensive pet. It's time to cull. So do you want a fourth season, or do you want maximum production from the bird day to day? Are you willing to call, etc.? These are things you have to consider when you're making that decision. Moving on. You want eggs, but you want your meat calls to be really high quality. You're kind of looking for a dual-purpose bird. There's a, almost all large or heavy breed chickens will fill this relatively well. And you might pick a different one than the one I'm going to give you based on the other things that you want in your system. But it's hard to beat the Jersey Giant here. Their eggs are not going to be as big as a much smaller bird at maturity like the red sex link. They were like big freaking eggs. Jersey Giants raise kind of a medium to medium large size egg. Does it really matter? I, I don't know. To me, unless you're talking like Bantam eggs or something like that, you got two eggs and they look something. You, know, you can say this one's bigger. and You cook them in a pan. 
for a meal, I don't really notice that much of an actual difference in reality. But, man, when you talk about a bird, that when you go, oh, Henrietta? <laughs> Henrietta's been around long enough. We have new Henriettas coming up. They're just starting to lay. It's time to, to cull out the old Henriettas. You're talking about big birds. You're talking about small turkeys. And I mean, yeah, like when I said that the Red Rangers were kind of like a small turkey, and they are. They're kind of, I mean, uh, the freaking Jersey Giants are as big. I, in fact, Jersey Giants are bigger than some turkeys at, at average processing size. You know, some of your your heritage breed turkeys and all, they're actually bigger. They're And they're an incredibly high-quality meat. Now, when they're an older bird, you're going to deal with toughness, But that's about cooking methods. You want high-quality meat, you want a Jersey Giant. What do you get from a Jersey Giant, though? You get a big, doofy bird that is not real interested in doing a lot of work. That might be good or bad, depending on your situation. They, they tend to be really gentle birds. That might be good or bad, depending on your situation. Okay. Next, birds that will brood with regularity. Let's say that you're like, you know what? What I really want, I'll take less eggs. I'll take not the greatest meat. But I want an ongoing reproductive flock. And I don't want to do nothing. Because I'm, I'm, I remember when Sepp Holzer said to somebody that said, but what if I don't want pigs? When he said, here's how you run this system with pigs. He said, if you don't want pigs, that's fine. But if you want to do this, then you must do the pig's job. Because there's only two things that will do this particular job, a pig or a person. No other piece of livestock can you stick in this particular system that I'm describing right now and have it taken care of except a pig. So you had to make that decision. Well, when it comes to chickens, if you don't have chickens that will reliably brood, which means decide I'm going to sit on an egg and I'm going to stay here and I'm going to make sure that this egg hatches, And after the egg hatches, I'm going to take care of the little puffballs that come out of them. If you don't have that, then what do you have to do? The chicken's job. You have to take the eggs. You have to put them in an incubator. You have to set the incubator. You have to wait for them to hatch. When the little puffballs come out and dry off, you got to put them in a brooder. you got to protect them. you got to feed them. you got to give them water. you got to keep them from killing themselves. you got to raise them to a certain size. And when they're a certain size, that they can be outside without any protection, you can put them out and join them to your flock. And somehow a little chicken can produce enough body heat and her little babies instinctively know to follow her that she can do all that and not work anywhere near as hard as you if you pick one that can breed. A breed that will reliably go broody is the cochin. Cochins are the ones with little feathers on their feet. There's other birds that have it too, but cochins always have little feathers on their feet. They are an awesome bird. They're also very gentle. In general, I've, I had one that was an asshole. And he made a really good little, you know, Cornish hen, basically, on the grill, right? That's how I handle asshole birds. But cochins, and I'll throw silkies in here because it's kind of a toss-up. Some people say silkies are better at brooding. Some say cochins are better at breeding. The nice thing about the cochin, if what you really want is a self-maintaining flock, is there a, if you don't go with bantams, they're a fairly heavy breed. And they lay a fairly decent-sized egg. So you have eggs, you have decent decent meat coals, it won't be as good as the Jersey Giant, but you also, if you have a flock, a sizable flock of cochins with a rooster, or a big enough flock where you have multiple roosters, 
the odds are that the intrinsic nature of that breed, that it will go broody, is some of those hens will be very broody birds. You want the downside? You know, and I'm not going to go with, well, it's not as big of a, of a dressed meat carcass as the Jersey Giant. Duh, of course it's not. The downside, if you choose a breed with this high intrinsic broody characteristics in it, the hens can and at times will brood themselves to death. Their drive to make new babies is so high that they will sit and sit and sit. And if you don't either let them hatch or get something to hatch, they will deplete themselves and they'll die. Do you know what that means to me? You probably shouldn't have a flock of cautions with nothing for them to hatch. If all you want is, I just want eggs. And I might want some reproduction, but I want to be the decider, right? I want to be the George W. Bush, right, of my chickens. I'm the decider, right? If, you, if that's you, the coachin is going to decide when she wants to do this. And some can be pushed off that brood pretty easy, but some cannot. And you don't know what you're going to get. Driving this point home. I have some Bantam coaches. This is why I got them, because they're broody. Um, of the little group I got, I had very few hens. And some of the really little ones, like I had a porcelain and a well summer, and they were so tiny that something ate them. They just disappeared. My little bit bigger ones, they've stuck around, but all of a sudden, my little black coaching disappeared. Don't see her. Two days into it, we hear right outside the front door, or out the back door. You know, I ain't let the birds out yet. <laughs> Go out there, and there she is. And she shows up every morning, and then she disappears. And she's young. She's barely old enough to be laying. But I'm like, they should all be laying now. Where are the eggs? We got a few eggs when they started, and they disappeared. Shortly after that, she did. I'm like, I know where this is. This bird is so young for her to be a dedicated brooding bird who's also conscious of hiding her location with no mentorship in that, because birds do mentor each other, is unusual, but not unprecedented. So yesterday when I did my Miyagi morning video, I hadn't seen her for a couple days, and I didn't notice her. And then I watched my own video, and there she is in the background. I'm like, you little, you little twit, I'm going to find out what's going on here. Because I want to know where she is, and I'll explain why in a second. So this morning... I'm out there filling pools, and I want to get to work. I've got all my outside stuff done, but I'm, I'm like, I got a cup of coffee, and I just start shadowing her, and I follow her. And she's looking at me. This little, this little bird knows what I'm doing. She does not want to give up her spot. So she goes all the way around the property. She heads back over by the chicken house. She goes in the composting pit. And I kind of just barely stay out of sight. And I see her looking. She's looking for me. A freaking bird with the size of a pea brain, six months old, this smart. She finally digs a couple grubs out of the compost pit. She gets a fill of those. She goes back to the compost pit. She's in there, and I can tell she's pretending to work the compost. She goes up out of the compost. There's a little hole in the fence in the holding area through the fence. And I, and I see her. So I step out from the shadow I'm in, and I see her plop down just barely past the fence. Not even really that hidden. And I go around, and she starts puffing up, like, I'm going to bite you, you know. Like, you're a two-pound bird. You're not going to do anything. I pick her up. She's got, like, ten eggs underneath her. Okay. 
I don't necessarily want to have baby chickens in February, which if this goes well, I will. She's been there long enough. We're probably in the 10 to 12 day range. From around Valentine's Day, the puffballs are coming. I don't know if that's the case. So now I have to, I have to deal with this intrinsic characteristic of this bird. That's why this is important. I'm willing to. I know this. So what we'll do now that we know where she is, we know about how long she's been there, within the next couple of days we'll candle those eggs. Why? I'm concerned that there's not a, a decent fertility rate. And the reason I'm concerned with that is I've observed my young rooster attempting to breed unsuccessfully but not successfully. He's a little bit smaller, lighter body, and I'm kind of interested in what the combination produces. He's a really cool bird, so I wanted to make him my rooster, but he may not have the ability to get the job done. I don't know yet. We'll, we'll have to see. So if I candle those eggs and they're not viable, the best thing I can do is get viable eggs and give them to her. The other thing I'm going to need to do is, since I have inexperienced hens that maybe don't respect the broody hen, I got to make sure they're not still popping eggs under her. Because I'm going to end up with eggs out of sequence in that situation. So that there's too many eggs for her to take care of and got eggs hatching at very different times. So I need to mark those. So this all relates to how those birds behave, their intrinsic characteristics. But this is why you know, people think, wow, well, I want broody birds. This is one of the parts of it. And you have to let them. This is a biological imperative. And that doesn't mean that you won't get a red sex link or a Delaware or a, you know, a Jersey Giant or any other bird that might not get locked into this cycle. It does mean if you keep birds that have this as an intrinsic characteristic, you're going to get some. All right. Moving on. What if you're like, you know what I want, Jack? I want birds and I'll eat my coals. Fine. But I'm not really that worried about it. I want eggs. But eggs are eggs to me. I don't care if they're small. I don't care if I get 300 a year, 200 per bird. is plenty of it. I, what I want is I want birds that are damn near feral. I want them to be able to fly. Good. I want them to be fast. I want them to be able to make a living off sparse land. You know, I'm in central Texas, and I don't want to feed them that much. I want wild chickens that will come home to roost. Okay, best advice I can give you, there may be something else, but flat out for me, the Egyptian Faomi, I call them the buzzard chicken because the females are ugly. The cockerels are actually kind of pretty. They are amazing for that purpose. Um, I didn't want them going over fences when I had them. I cut their wings till I was afraid to cut anymore because I thought it was going to cause feathers to bleed. And they could still get over a six-foot fence. Because they would come up to it and they would flap with such intensity of what they had left that they would get high enough to hook their beak in the top of the fence and pull themselves over. With with wings, they just flew over like a like an actual bird, unlike a domestic chicken. Fast, they make roadrunners look slow. Eggs, you get lots of eggs. They're just small. They're about halfway between a regular-sized chicken egg and a bantam. They're white eggs. Um... When they when they molt, they are really ugly. They really look like little buzzards. They make an obnoxious noise, the hens. The, the roosters make a, a, a typical crow. They mature 
incredibly fast. A normal chicken is going to go 22 weeks to 24 weeks before it lays the first egg. Egyptian families will generally start to lay eggs at 18 weeks on the outside. Sometimes they'll start laying as early as 16. It's incredibly fast for a chicken. The roosters will begin to crow by their second week. It will not sound like a, a proper crow, but you'll be able to tell. They're a freaking wild bird. Is I, I don't know exactly what the very first jungle fowl that was selected looked like, but my guess it was probably a slightly more ornate version of the Egyptian Faomi. My I don't know this. I'm I'm, I'm hypothesizing here. My hypothesis the, they are about as close to the wild form fowl that you can get. They also can handle heat. Like nobody's business, think about the, the geographic root of the name, Egyptian Faomi. Are they for everybody? No. But you know what? If you had a pretty big piece of land, and you didn't want to feed your birds much at all, and you wanted to get a big flock and just accept your losses and let the smartest, fastest ones procreate, and if you were fine with the fact that when you um, cull a cockerel, it's going to be about like... A small pheasant in size and, and taste as well, by the way, then yeah, perfect bird for that. But that's in understanding the bird and its limits. If you lived in a residential neighborhood with some Karens around where you could technically have chickens, but you don't need any complaints, it is the last thing you would want. Its intrinsic characteristics do not fit that environment. If you wanted quality meat, It's not what you want. There's nothing wrong with it, per se. It's just there's not enough of it to be worth doing. You have to match the element to the system. Next up, what if you want heavy compost processing? You say, look, you've made your case that most chickens have common intrinsic characteristics. The main thing I want these birds to do is process compost. And I want them to do a really good job. Okay, all chickens will do that. But what you really want is a heavy breed. And I don't care which kind now. You want a heavy breed. And the re you know, as long as you do that, you're going to get that. Number one, they have the weight that when you're adding things to the compost, in, you know, in addition to scraps and all, like straw, they're going to do a really good job of shredding it. My little banties, they kick the straw around. When I used to have bigger birds, the straw looked like somebody took scissors and chopped it into little pieces when they were done with it. It was amazing the way they processed it. Since they're heavy... They don't really want to do a lot. The bigger the bird, the less it wants to do. So it's going to be happy to spend most of its time sitting around processing compost. And you just say, well, Jack, does anybody want that? What if one of your side hustles, your revenue streams, right? What if that's compost? What if you're literally getting people to bring you waste stream, processing it with chickens, making compost, And selling it is the best compost you can get. You know, there's a guy that makes his living doing that. He's, I think, in Vermont. I'll see if I can dig up a video about him later this week and get it up on Odyssey for you. But Jeff Lawton featured him. And he literally, I think he makes something like 18 different specific types of compost. He's at like a commercial level operation. But when he has growers that are like, I need compost for fill in the blank, he makes a compost for that that people have shipped to them. Because it's so good that the chickens make it. And it's not just marketing. A chicken can do things with compost that a normal composting process will never do. 
if a chicken is taking care of a compost pile up to a certain point where you they're kind of done and you let it finish, up until that point, that compost cannot, will not, does not go anaerobic. If it's being heavily worked, it can't be because it's constantly being churned. Now, if that guy can do it at a commercial level, imagine that somebody that had an area, like I do, urban rural fringe, got on next door and said, I got a deal. I will bring you a five-gallon bucket every Monday morning. Give me your address. I'll just set it on your door. Next Monday, I'll come pick that bucket up. If you need two buckets, I will give you two buckets. However many buckets you need to handle your waste stream, and you say, these are the things that go in the bucket, and these things that don't go in the bucket. When I come back next Monday, I will put an empty bucket there, and I will pick the full bucket up. I will be like your garbage man for all your food waste. Again, here's the things that can go in the bucket, those that can't. And you brought home a truckload or two of waste stream every week like that. And maybe buckets aren't the way to go. Maybe little black and yellow containers, right? Five-gallon ones that stack nicely. Boy, you could set a shitload of those in a truck, can't you? Just a simple, cheap pickup truck. And you developed your own composting system. So that you were making that compost. You know what your eggs are now? A byproduct. You know what your coals are? A byproduct. Those birds could be managed totally different than the way I manage mine in a free-range system. That is an ideal situation for a coop and dual or triple or quadruple run. You want birds that are happy to just sit around and be fat-ass chickens and work compost every day. Almost all your heavy breeds will do that. I'm sure there's ones that are better than others. I just don't know which ones they are. That would be one example of the... See, what I'm doing here is I'm not breaking it down by purposes, but the primary purpose. So you might think, well, everybody uses their chickens, if they're smart about it, for compost. But who would dedicate chickens to composting? Somebody doing that. That doesn't mean if your chickens are more of a free-range type, like mine are and my ducks are, they can't be used for composting. It just means that you're actually able to dial in the behavior and the intrinsic characteristics to the goal. So I wanted to include that. And I do want to finish with this. Don't get analysis paralysis. If you're thinking, Jack, I just want chickens. Go get a multi-species flock. When your cockerels exceed the number you want, have young chickens for fryers, even if they're smaller. Keep the birds, keep all your pullets, observe the behaviors, eat your problems. You can rehome them too, because most people will take hens, right? But if you have certain behaviors that you consider, like this, these birds, like let's say you didn't listen to this episode today, and you went down to tractor supply like I did, and you just bought, like, I want some sex links, and I want this random pullets, and I want, what are these, Faomis? Yeah, throw some of those in there, and you get home. And you have these damn birds flying all over the place causing problems and shitting on your roof and sitting on the overhang over your pool and crapping in your pool like families will do. Just eat them. Yeah, well, that was a mistake. It's an eat. It's not a type 1 error is what I'm getting at. You put a pond in the wrong location, you committed a type 1 error. You're going to live with that bad choice forever and have to make the best of it. You're going to regret it from the day you realize the error for the rest of eternity as long as you are on that property. That's type 1 error. Picking the wrong chicken breed can be corrected with a killing cone and a slit throat. 
and it's not that big a deal, and people that get offended by that eat chicken five times a week and then get offended by that. If you are not willing to intentionally kill animals for harvest, do not get livestock unless you find someone who's willing to take that responsibility on for you. If you are not willing to have livestock that you do not want to die, die in your care, do not get livestock because some of them are going to die. You'll go buy chicks. They all seem healthy. You bring them home. And one, you just immediately go, that one's going to die. And you can make a little hospital brooder. Or you can give it tender, loving care. And sometimes they turn around. Most of the time they don't. Most of the time when you have a young bird and you, ducks, chickens, quail, you're like, that one's going to die. It just wasn't in the cards for it to make it. And you will do the wrong thing at time and lose animals. It's part of the process. And, you know, they're not children. Don't name them, right? Unless you have a different way of looking at it. I have names for all my chickens. I have names for my chickens because that way when I tell my wife which one, she knows what I'm talking about. But I don't name them the way Charlie, my dog, is named. I'll care for that dog until he naturally passes or I have to make the hard decision to put him down. He's my friend. He's not livestock. He's my partner. He's not livestock. And, and it's important that you keep that in mind. And so the group of people that this will be the most challenging for are a group of people I have incredible respect for. Vegetarians. I don't want to be one. I'm not going to live that lifestyle. I think health-wise your life is a lot harder that way. But I'm not talking about vegans, where you know you're enslaving animals. Whatever, I don't have time for you, right? There's there's a lot of memes going around about that. Vegans, I don't I don't eat animals because I respect nature. And then the next picture is like hyenas covered in blood, and it says nature, or it's, it's the same one, but it's a frog with a mouse, kind of like petting the the frog. And the next picture is like the mouse's tail sticking out of the frog's mouth. Nature, right? That's that's where I am. But vegetarians, I very much understand. Sometimes I tease them, but I understand. And I'll tell you why. Because I take the life of animals I eat, and I never derive pleasure from it. I derive pleasure from the result. I do not derive pleasure from the action. Even as a hunter, I have a lot of enjoyment hunting. And that, that enjoyment doesn't cease when I pull the trigger or let the arrow fly. But when I walk up to that animal and I realize it gave its life for me, I feel something. And in the words of Joel Salatin, when he talks about slaughtering chickens, he said, if you slaughter chickens all the time, you'll stop feeling something. And if you take an animal's life and you feel nothing, you should cease for a while till the feeling comes back. Because it's important that we understand that sacrifice. You heighten the sacrifice, you get a vegetarian. You heighten a feeling, you get a vegetarian. I respect that. I totally respect that. And a vegetarian can certainly make something like chickens and rabbits for fertility and eggs part of a system, and they should. In the end, though, you end up with a four- or five-year-old bird that takes and gives not back. You either accept that and you keep that bird like a pet, so you have like basically two groups Layers and old ladies? Or you say, this is not for me. I am not going to end the life of these animals. But you find a partner, someone who says, I am a meat eater. 
and then you have this knowledge as a, ve a vegetarian, that person that's eating my old chickens is not eating a chicken from a CAFO or a, a, a Tyson chicken house. Every ounce they consume from here, that animal was raised with care and love and given quality of life till it no longer could fill its role here. Or you keep them. But do not think you'll be able to give them away. And say, because I see it on Craigslist when I'm checking for what people are doing. You know, I have I have like 17 older hens that aren't laying anymore. I, I'd like to send them somewhere where they won't be killed. Good luck. There's no such thing as a chicken rescue for old chickens. It's the most consumed meat in America. It's its destiny. And if you're not okay with that, don't give me a bunch of shit because I don't care. But I also respect that you're not okay with it and then don't go down this road. Um, in the end, though, picking a breed is either real important or not very, depending on you, the chicken keeper. The real analysis in any situation where we're going to involve living things under our care is internal analysis. We must analyze ourselves. If something requires 10 hours of care a week and there's no way to automate it away, You have to be honest with, will I do it? Because if you won't, don't. My son and daughter-in-law are talking about getting a dog. I love dogs. You know that. My feeling is they have no business getting a dog right now. They don't get home till late. The dog's going to be alone all day. They have a really small yard. The dog's going to tear it up. They're doing okay with money, but I always hear about how they don't have enough. It's another expense. Like, they're not in the right place to properly care for a dog. They have a cat. That's perfect. The cat learns to use a litter box. An indoor cat learns to use a litter box. If you fill up the food and water sufficiently and put a fresh litter box in and leave for a week, when you come home, what does the cat think? Where have you been? It's you. Huh. You're back. Okay. Are you going to pet me? No, I'm going to go over here and sleep. Dogs don't work that way. When it comes to our livestock, we have to think the same way, even though they're not pets. What does this thing require? Just because I take the life of these animals doesn't mean that I don't honor and respect that same life. I do what I do as a farmer. It's a very side thing for me, but I do it because I care about the food I consume, but I also care about the animal's quality of life that I'm consuming. You know, Mark Shepard talks about his pigs, and he says, and you can hear a little bit of regret in his voice, because you should have that feeling, or you've lost your humanity. They have one bad day. And you can hear, almost hear his voice crack. The man that raised his livestock commercially for a living. And you can almost hear it in that video. They have one bad day. My goal is for them to have one bad second and not know it. And not even know it. And it can be done. I've slaughtered chickens that didn't even death kick. I did it in front of people one time. It's not something you can do all the time. It's not something to feel bad about if you can't do it. And when it comes to slaughtering small livestock, occasionally you'll make a mistake and it won't go well. And you'll have to process it and deal with it. But to me, doing that over eating a chicken that lived for six to eight miserable weeks standing in its own shit, 
was probably kicked when it was put into a slaughter truck. You know, uh, chickens that lived that short life, and while they lived it, the farmer takes a front-end loader full of dead bodies a day out of there from the ones that don't make it, that fall over and die from diseases. It's totally worth it. Just my little add-on there at the end. But I really hope today, if you listen to this, that you understand that this analysis isn't really about a chicken. And it's not just about you. It's about the total system, and the, all the elements should go through this analysis without getting paralyzed. With the ability to say, in the end, I'm going to try this thing. And I'm going to do it in a way with an exit strategy if it doesn't work out. And then... Before I exit, I know that's there, so I can just relax. Can I adjust to correct for the mistake? If you do that, you'll have success with the majority of what you do. With that, we've wrapped up things today, and I want to remind you guys that you can help support us by becoming a member of the MSB. If you want to do that, go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members. Sign up there. There's a variety of ways to pay, including cryptocurrency. And if you use the discounts we give you, you'll get your money back in spades. Most people that have been members for any length of time tell me they make money on the MSB. I had one guy email me the other day and say, I don't want a discount. I don't need a discount. The discounts on the CBD products alone pay for this over and over every year. That's what I tried to build into it. Check it out today, the survivalpodcast.com and click on members. But that does have an out-of-pocket cost. There's another way to support us that has no direct cost. You probably buy stuff online. It is 2020. When you buy stuff online, if you go to tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com, you'll see a whole bunch of stuff I've reviewed. But if you start your shopping there, no matter what you buy, you'll help support us in the work that we do, and many times you're going to do that anyway. The item of the day today, though, is the Felco F2 hand pruners. Um, there's a couple reasons I brought this around today. Number one, it is time to be pruning your trees and shrubs in your perennials. It is time. It's almost past time. You want to prune before you really get into bud break and blossoming and stuff like that. So it's February. It's time. And tick-tock, tick-tock. It's getting more time, and pretty soon it'll be past time. The other reason is they're marked down 26%. Felco pruners are expensive relative to going down to Wally World and buying a cheap pair of pruners. Period. They are. Unlike that cheap pair of pruners that'll last you a season or two if you're lucky, though, They're pretty much a lifetime purchase. Now, if you, you know, you work at a nursery and you prune stuff every single day, they're not a lifetime purchase. The average homesteader wants and done. You can sharpen them, and once the blade's really worn out, you can actually replace the main cutting blade. And so you, they can pretty much go on forever if properly maintained. Um, and when you get something like that marked down 26%, it's a good time to buy. And when it's the right time of year, it's also the right time to buy. The other thing is I do give some other options in this if you want to buy less expensive products. But I really recommend the F2. They are a full-size, you know, they're a small hand pruner. You hold them in one hand, right? There is an F6. It's a slightly smaller version, and some people that have smaller hands tend to approve of the F6 a little better. It's also on sale. I also have a video showing you how to sharpen these shears in the, the write-up today. Remember, you can always get every day. My announcements about the item of the day, the show, everything like that. If you're on our Telegram channel, you don't have to listen to all the discussion that's on the group if you just want to be on the channel. Um, and on the channel now I have where you can comment on things even if you don't want to be in the general discussion just so I see it. Um, you can also join the Daily Mail. 
I like you on the daily mail list. I will always have a mail list. I'll tell you why you might want to consider the Telegram channel over the mail or both. Two things. One, if you care about coming to our events, the channel's how I announce them now, the the sign-up. So that's where you just figure it's a way to, to truly ro uh, reward the motivated. The other reason, though, is you know this is not going to happen probably with something like a Felco set of hand pruners. Um, but occasionally things go on sale that I feature, and by the time I do the show, or certainly by the time I finish the show, they're sold out or the sale's gone. That happened yesterday with an incredible deal on DeWalt tools. It was $100 savings, and it was gone before I even started the show, and, and it happens. There's times when I find things or deals, and I put them out, and I think I can tell sometimes I caused them to sell out. I've seen it happen, so... Anyway, just a good thing to think about. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with our song of the day today. This song is by a band that I, I like a lot, and I like a lot of their music, but I'm not like I don't think I would call myself a huge fan. And this is a song that's one of their lesser-known songs. And if you if you grew up in the '70s and '80s, when I say the band's name, you're like, oh yeah, and you're going to think of ten songs immediately that you relate to them. It's Ario Speedwagon. Uh, this one is one that you may not. I've thought of, you probably did. It's called The Key. This song is really, you know, I said today it was really about analyzing yourself more than the chicken. You analyze yourself and your situation, and you fit the chicken into it. A little bit different take, but in some ways this is the same thing. Your real answers, the real key to what you're looking for in life, to what will make you happy, to, to what you will love, to who will be able to love you. All of it. You're the only one that holds the key. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Someone would come along to make it right